From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Investigative journalist Amy Hurdy has spent her career uncovering sexual abuse in the military, on college campuses. Now she takes on the case of filmmaker Woody Allen, who was accused in two states of molesting his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow. Hurdy, formerly of the Denver Post, spent years working on HBO's Allen vs. Farrow. It was difficult getting any of the subjects to talk because it was such a painful time of their lives that no one wanted to dive back into it. Then, a Denver woman watches chaos unfold in northern Ethiopia and worries for her family. I haven't been able to reach most of these people for the past four months and have no idea who's alive, who's dead. Plus, the famous clock behind a famous song. My name is Sonia. I support CPR because when I first moved to Denver about a year and a half ago, listening to the news, but also the classical and the indie station, helped me feel like I was more a part of the community here. And it just helped me feel more like I had a home here. So I am so grateful to support CPR, and I hope that others will join me. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Journalist Amy Hurdy has spent her career investigating sexual assault, first as a newspaper reporter. For example, the 2003 series at the Denver Post, Betrayal in the Ranks, about rape in the military. Later, Hurdy met documentary filmmakers Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick, who were focused on the same subject. And together, they're taking on the story of director Woody Allen and actress Mia Farrow. Woody Allen is one of the most prominent American directors. He was such a cultural figure. Woody Allen, Mia Farrow, that's the ideal power couple. Woody gave her everything she could possibly want. I was over the moon happy. But that's the great regret of my life. I wish I'd never met him. Mia reportedly has a video of their daughter, Dylan, explaining how Alan molested her. Would you give us a comment, Woody? Alan denies child abuse, but freely admits he's in love with another of Pharaoh's daughters, 21-year-old Soon Yi. There was a stack of Polaroid pictures. All of them were of my own child. I remember struggling to breathe. Hurdy and her fellow filmmakers poured over home movies and boxes of court documents to reveal... In Woody Allen, a pattern of child sexual abuse and cover-up. A note that today's discussion includes some graphic descriptions. And Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ryan. And I would like to point out there's a double entendre with that title of Allen v. Farrell, because initially you think that it is Mia Farrell, but it actually turns out to be Dylan Farrell, because it was Dylan Farrell's coming forward to say that Woody Allen had molested her that started all of the case. Indeed. And, uh, you know, it's well known that Woody Allen married his ex-girlfriend's adopted daughter. He claims their sexual relationship started when she was of legal age, uh, but you find otherwise. And there were investigations in New York and Connecticut into allegations that Allen sexually assaulted his seven-year-old adoptive daughter, Dylan, as you say, claims that Allen denies. Uh, This was never brought to trial, these specific allegations. What new light are you able to shed? 
Well, it was never brought to a criminal trial, and we explore the reasons behind that. It was brought up in the custody trial, and we have all of the transcripts as well as never before heard recordings of phone conversations between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. So when you look at the transcripts for the trial, what becomes clear about Woody Allen's behavior towards Dylan Farrow? Well, what becomes clear is that there was a pattern of behavior that began when she was very young. Dylan became very withdrawn and sad, and they put her in therapy when she was five because she became so withdrawn. And for what we know now would be a classic signs of a child who is in distress, right? She twice told her therapist, and it was within a very short time frame, that she had a secret. And the therapist did not tell Mia. And I find that very significant that this child was trying to disclose something and trying to get help years before she actually disclosed in a way where she finally was noticed for it. There are several of these disclosures that she, Dylan, makes later on to Mia Farrow on videotape. It's some of the most powerful and unsettling aspects of of your series. And then let's talk about what emerges from these phone calls, these recorded phone calls between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. What light do they shed? Woody Allen has presented himself for years in all of his films as a charming, likable, harmless guy, right? Ne- um, nebbish. Is yeah, term, exactly. Know. He shows you that he's flawed and the audience loves him for it because he's always earnest about it and contemplative and thoughtful and um, funny. And it's in stark contrast to the Woody Allen who is heard on these audio tapes. The voice on these audio tapes is cold and the demeanor is calculating and he sounds scary to me. You brought charges against me as an unfit mother. And I'm gonna make him stick. Woody, don't do this. Don't try this, don't do this. I don't deserve it. What do you hope that this series achieves? I hope this series achieves awareness for incest and for survivors to feel that they can come forward and be heard and get help. Because I think there are a lot of survivors who are suffering in silence. That word incest. Will you help us understand why you use that term and uh, exactly what an adult Dylan Farrow revealed to you? So incest is such an uncomfortable topic. People very rarely want to talk about it. And Me Too has not touched on it at all, right? And people literally wince when you touch on this topic. It's so painful and it's unthinkable. And the term was appropriate. And in the very beginning, we questioned, well, is that appropriate? And they said, well, yes, because he was her father for all intents and purposes. He was in her life from the time she was adopted and she was adopted at just a few days old and he legally adopted her. And that was a paternal relationship and she loved him and she trusted him. 
You know, I've been reading the media coverage on this, and it seems that some of the columnists have problems because it's child sexual abuse and because it's incest, and they want to have their rape and sexual assault cases be much neater and cleaner than that, right? They want to have broken bones and blackened eyes, and that's not what happens with incest, right? There aren't typically broken bones. There's broken hearts, but there's not broken bones. And that's what makes it so insidious. And that's how perpetrators are able to get away with it. Their victims love them. The sort of watershed interaction between Woody Allen and Dylan Farrow, the incident that seems to be of greatest focus for the documentary happens when she is seven on uh, this property in Connecticut that the family owns. And what are you comfortable telling us Uh, appears to have happened, and how do you back up the claims there? I will say we thoroughly unpack that day, and we hear from witnesses who were there that day, and we pretty much lay it all out in a very factual way of exactly what happened, and from looking at all of the evidence that we gathered and the transcripts and talking to the um, witnesses, I firmly believe that Woody Allen molested Dylan Farrell that day. Woody Allen wouldn't speak with you. When the first episode premiered, he made a statement disparaging the series, claiming it was full of falsehoods. What's your response to that as someone who's talked with the Pharaoh family and, as you've reflected, seen these detailed court and medical documents, again, the home movies and the recorded phone calls? What falsehoods? Name them. You know, that's a sweeping statement that he's just making in defense. There are no falsehoods. This project was very carefully researched and very thoroughly vetted um, and very thoroughly lawyered, I must say, by teams of lawyers. Um, And we are confident that it is completely factual and correct. If Alan would have agreed to an interview, what would you most like to have asked him? Oh, my gosh. Um, that day, that pivotal day, that pivotal day. And we explore all of his statements about that day. That's all revealed in the episodes. But I would love to have sat down and asked him questions. I'm sure he would have had his attorneys in the room and not answered any of them, but I would have loved to have had the chance. What's fascinating about that day you speak of is that the people around Dylan Farrow, around the family, were on high alert about Woody Allen. Uh, this profound sense of not to leave him alone with Dylan. Everybody's hackles were raised already. Right. Would you just share a few words about that? Oh, absolutely. In episode one, we reveal a pattern of behavior that he had with Dylan. And when you say, what else would I ask him? Well, I would also say... How is it appropriate that you have a young child suck your thumb? How is it appropriate that you direct a young child how to suck your thumb in great detail? How is it appropriate that you get in bed with a young child wearing just your underwear and wrap your body, your legs around her? How is that appropriate? How is it appropriate to pursue a child throughout a house when she's running away and saying, hide me, hide me, when she's hiding from you in a locked bathroom Why is it appropriate to stand on the other side of the door and demand that she open the door and let you in? You know, just this pattern of behavior that was overwhelming for Dylan. 
And I would love to hear his thoughts on how he thought that that was all okay. What were some of the challenges you faced in the research? Oh my gosh. First of all, it was difficult getting any of the subjects to talk because it was such a painful time of their lives that no one wanted to dive back into it. Does that include Um, Dylan Farrell? Yes. She absolutely hesitated in the beginning. And her brother, Ronan, advised her not to talk to us. He was concerned that she would be um, further retaliated against and experience more backlash, you know, more hate mail, more trolling. I mean, nobody needs that. And so he was trying to protect her. More trolling, more hate mail. That is to say, those who speak out against popular, often beloved figures are often made to be the enemies. Absolutely. She has been through it. And even now, I mean, primarily the media coverage has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive for her. But there are still trolls who are attacking her and who are attacking the veracity of her story. And that is incredibly troubling that they would attack who was then a seven-year-old girl. A seven-year-old girl, by the way, whose story was, as you point out in the series, incredibly consistent. She's interviewed, somewhat inappropriately, by the way, for long stretches of time and multiple occasions, which is really anathema to how these things should be carried out when you're interviewing a young child, you point out. And despite that kind of pressure, her story remains consistent. Oh, absolutely. Her story remained consistent. And she was put through a grueling process. Even back in 1992, they knew better. Today, there's no way that that would be allowed to happen, where she was interviewed over and over and over again. And we will unpack that. It was horrific and ridiculous. Um, And, you know, what we found from looking through all the records was that she was consistent with the story that she told and that there were many people who believed her, many people who were investigating who believed her. And that's reflected in the records. And that's what we reveal. By the way, how long have you been working on this, Amy? Uh, I worked on it for three full years. Three years. We'll talk more about the investigation, but I'd like to step back and just talk a bit more about your career, your trajectory. You've made a career investigating sensitive topics that not everyone is open about, both in print and on film. I think of 2015's The Hunting Ground, about sexual assault on college campuses. How would you say you were first drawn to these sorts of stories? Oh, I was drawn to the crime beat when I was at the St. Pete Times. And it's the beat that they give the rookie reporters, right? Um, it's sort of like, okay, prove your, your worth and then we'll give you a, a more decent beat to cover like education or government um, because it's very difficult. It's competitive. The topics are grim. It's unpredictable. There might be a homicide at 4 a.m. that you have to get up and go out of bed and, and go to the scene of. You know, there might be multiple crimes in a day and you're running from crime scene to crime scene. And then just the nature of the work itself. Um, like I said, it's grim, it's dark, and um, you either have the fortitude in the stomach for it or you don't. And I discovered that I did and that I excelled at it and I loved it. I found the investigative element of it to be incredibly interesting. You know, there were many times when I would have a subject I was interviewing, you know, tell me something and I would go check it out myself. And my story started to take on more of an investigative beat 
And so I was at the St. Pete Times for seven years and I stayed in the crime beat and loved every minute of it. And then I went to the Denver Post as a criminal justice reporter in 2002. And then we did uh, Betrayal in the Ranks, Miles Moffat and I, in 2003. And I've not looked back. I've done investigative ever since. I also think of Diary of a Predator, which you wrote about a notorious serial rapist. I think that's the last time we spoke with you on the show. And, and so it's, it's interesting. You said, I had a stomach for it. What did you realize about yourself? I realized that I could talk to victims. I could talk to victims' family members. I could talk to police and get really difficult, wrenching details, and that it did not affect me to the way where I couldn't do my work. I went through a time period, and I wrote about this in Diary of a Predator, when I was at the Denver Post, when we were researching betrayal in the ranks, and I interviewed more than 60 survivors of military sexual trauma. And I, at the time, did not have really good boundaries with all these survivors. I gave them my personal cell phone number. I answered my cell phone nights and weekends. And I truly developed secondary PTSD from working on that series Hmm. um, because I don't think that I knew how to deal with all of that trauma at the time. And I took three months off and I had to heal and I had to learn how to handle this type of work in a more effective manner and in a way that was healthier for myself. And did a lot of soul searching, did a lot of meditation, did a lot of therapy, did a lot of running and came back to the Denver Post stronger than ever and with a whole new set of tools that I could use to do my job. And I've relied on them ever since. And it was, it was ironic because I no sooner came back than uh, the serial rapist case regarding Brent Brents exploded and they assigned me the case. And I was like, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's talk more about the series at hand, Alan versus Pharaoh. It, it digs into the sexist narrative that Alan spun around Mia Pharaoh, that she was, and I use this term uh, carefully, that she was hysterical and that she was a bad mother. From the taped calls we hear in the series, it essentially sounds like she's being gaslit. What is it like to have revisited this case in the Me Too era? I never fully appreciated the term being gaslit until I started researching this case, until I started having interactions with Mia Farrell and realizing how thoughtful and cogent she was, even at the time, considering what had happened to her. And when I went back and looked at her testimony, when I listened to those audio tapes, when I Um, read through all the records, she handled it with an amazing amount of grace. And gaslit is such an appropriate term for what was done to her. And we definitely unpack that. And I would just, I would tell anyone who has a question about whether or not she was hysterical and what her overall demeanor was like, watch the series. You get a chance to listen to her. You get a chance to look in her eyes And you get a chance to really know Mia Farrell in a way that she has not revealed before. This story also extends to how children are so often let down by the family court system. Uh, This is especially true of something called the parental alienation defense, which you show has dire consequences for kids ending back up with abusive parents. 
Were you surprised by some of the statistics? Shocked at some of the statistics and shocked at what the experts were telling us that parental alienation is still used today. And explain that just briefly, Amy, parental alienation. um, It's claiming, you know, primarily in child sexual abuse cases, which are primarily the child discloses to the mother. And when the mother reports it, then the if the father is the perpetrator, the father says, well, she's making this up. She coached the child, you know, and she's trying to alienate the child from me. And it was something uh, that we show, we dive into thoroughly of how it began and how it was used and how it's an old playbook that is still used. And it's, it's shocking. What we reveal about parental alienation is shocking in the series. Are there any legal consequences that Woody Allen could still face as a result of your reporting? Or is this about altering the perception of him in popular culture? Well, the statute of limitations is still open for Dylan, both in Connecticut and in New York State. But of course, that's a very personal, private decision that she would have to make, right? If she wanted to pursue a criminal case against him. She has spent her entire life dealing with this. And I think in a a lot of ways, she's so gratified to finally have her story out in an accurate way and to have everything revealed that we discovered. But I think she would also still very much like for it to just all be over and be able to get on with the rest of her life. Hmm. Can you watch a Woody Allen film again? Never. Do you want to say a few more words about that? What I have learned about Woody Allen is that the persona that he presents on camera is not who I believe that he is. And I think his art now, viewed through the lens that I have, I find it distasteful. Amy, thank you so much for sharing the reporting with us. Absolutely, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Investigative journalist and filmmaker Amy Hurdy, formerly of the Denver Post. The four-part HBO docuseries Allen vs. Pharaoh continues this Sunday on HBO and HBO Max. For migrant workers in Mesa County, the pandemic was only one obstacle in 2020. A year into COVID, CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg checks back with a charity that supports these workers and their families. The last time I visited Child and Migrant Services in downtown Palisade, the nonprofit was still bracing for impact. It was late March, and COVID-19 had started to spark in resort communities and along the Front Range. But Mesa County was still mostly untouched. Within months, it would have one of the highest infection rates in Colorado. Everyone was afraid. Maria Frausto, who's originally from Mexico, works at the nonprofit and is always talking with workers and their families. Whole families get sick with the virus. I get the virus. I get the COVID. She recovered, and so did her family, after most of them got it. But she knows many people are not that lucky, and the seasonal workers who didn't get sick still faced choking wildfire smoke in the summer and punishing cold snaps in the spring and fall that devastated crops. Everything was froze, frozen, so, yeah, it was no work, no money, no job. 
Nothing. Child and Migrant Services is a small organization, but Director Carolyn Dorn says they're doing as much as they can to help workers affected by the pandemic. That includes making about 150 meals every week they deliver or workers pick up. It's such a good feeling to give a plate of home-style food to someone that you know has been working so hard in the orchards all day. The group has also started offering modest grants so workers can send money home to their families. Vital donations help make all this possible. And while Dorn was worried the pandemic would dry them up, the nonprofit has actually been doing okay. It's really a, a tribute to this community how generous people have been and continue to be. From big foundation grants to a $5 bill wrapped in a coffee filter and left in their Dropbox. But Dorn knows there's still more workers out there who need support. There's no telling what challenges a new growing season will bring. In Palisade, I'm Stina Seek, CPR News. War is ravaging northern Ethiopia, and it has been a constant worry for Maliti Burhana Maskell of Denver. Her relatives have fled their homes. She's had only brief phone calls with some who didn't dare say where they were hiding. She doesn't know if others are even alive. Burhana Maskell recently returned from a trip to refugee camps in neighboring Sudan, where she has tried to learn more. She's now campaigning to bring international attention to what's going on in Ethiopia's Tigray region. And, Melody, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. You have a tie to one of the refugee camps you visited. Uh, Explain that. Yes. So I moved to Colorado when I was three months old, and I moved here from Sudan. I was born in a refugee camp just outside of Gadarif called Mgulja. Almost four decades ago, when I was born there, there was a civil war again in Ethiopia and the state of Tigray was being bombed by its own government, by the federal government. And so that led my parents to flee into Sudan, where I was born. Do you have any memories of that time? Was there a a certain feeling of coming full circle? No memories because I left so young. So everything I know is what my parents told me or what others, you know, who were in those same camps told me. But I will say when I went back to talk to refugees and glean the story from their perspective about what's happening in Tigray, I entered a camp called Umrakuba and there was a small child with her father. They were sitting on the ground outside of their tent. And I just had this moment where I thought, wow, that child is me. 40 years ago. It was really just powerful. In visiting these refugee camps, were you able to make any connections with relatives? You know, it's been a really traumatizing four months because not only are we hearing all of these stories about mass murder, mass burials, rape on a really just awful level, All of my family is in Tigray, all of them. I'm here with my mother. My father passed away, but my mom and some siblings, but everyone is there. My grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, all of these people. And you hear about these, like the massacre in Aksum. That's my hometown. That's where my father's family is from. And so I haven't been able to reach most of these people for the past four months and have no idea who's alive who's dead. So in going to Sudan, there was a small part of me that hoped maybe I would find 
you know, some of these family members who could tell me they're okay and that maybe it's not as bad as we're hearing, you know, in the news and through certain stories. Um, I did find an uncle. Um, Yeah, I know. And it was, I wasn't expecting that. Um, It's actually my mom's first cousin, but he's a lot older. And so in my culture, that'd be an uncle. (laughs) But I found him and his family. They lived in a town called Humara that's in Western Tigray, and that's closest to Sudan. So it was easy for those people and natural for those people to just flee into Sudan once their towns were attacked. So I was able to find him and all of his family, but I haven't been able to find or even whether by telephone or even hear through other family members who I have reached about the whereabouts of a number of family members, especially one of my mom's younger sisters who lives in a border town that has been, um, we've heard a lot of atrocities related to that town. So I really didn't uh, accomplish much in terms of finding my family in Sudan other than that one uncle. Um, But I learned a lot about just what's happening in Tigray. And if Amnesty International's reports are any indication, there was, as you hinted, a massacre in the city of Aksum in November that, quote, may have been a crime against humanity. As you mentioned, you have family there, uh, and so you await word of their fate. I want to note that you have been frequently going back to Ethiopia, obviously before this latest conflict in Tigray, I would go to Ethiopia every year. The first time I went back, I was 17 years old. So I was born in Sudan, came here very young. And then I just heard lots and lots of stories about what Ethiopia was like and what Tigray was like. And, you know, mostly from my mom and my dad. And I would talk to relatives on the phone. But the first time I went back when I was 17, I was able to meet my grandmother. And I was able to meet my uh, grandfather, my mom's uh, stepdad and lots of cousins. And I have aunts on my dad's side who are now in their 80s, um, but I was able to meet them and just form these relationships with my family. They're they're largely farmers for the most part. So, you know, they're, you know, hand to mouth. So I, I formed a lot of relationships with those people and I made it a point to go back as much as I could. And now that I have small children to take them back as well, to learn the culture and the language and just such a beautiful, beautiful Place. You talked about identity in a video that you recorded just before your trip to the refugee camps in Sudan. Let's listen to that. I think I'm having an identity crisis around being an Ethiopian, which is something I was very proud of before. Um, it was intertwined with being a Tigrayan. And I'm having this identity crisis because I don't think there's a single excuse in the world in this day and age, especially to be able to bomb your own people. The only way you can do that is if you don't see them as your own people. So let's talk about this conflict. It began in November with an attack on Tigray. Give me just a little bit of background on the situation before this happened. I understand this region which is also mountainous, like where you are now, Um, it was doing pretty well economically. Yes. So Ethiopia is a success story by by all accounts. When I, I remember when I was a child growing up here, 
people would make fun of us in school and they would call us, you know, starving Ethiopians, because what did you know about Ethiopia at that time? It was the save the children commercials. It was the starving Ethiopian with an inflated belly. So in a span of three decades or so, the whole Ethiopian story had been transformed. And so it was these guerrilla fighters who got rid of the last government, which was this awful military government. And they came in, created a constitution, nation states essentially, that came together through a federation and changed the entire country and and how Ethiopia showed up in the region. It turned into this economic success story, lifting Ethiopians out of poverty. It's a stabilizing force in the Horn of Africa. It really is. It really is. And so things improved economically for people, but there were still challenges with uh, the EPRDF government. And people didn't feel like they were really fully recognizing democracy. And so there was uprising, especially among the Oromo community in Ethiopia. So there was a, a, an abrupt change of government. The prime minister resigned and Abiy Ahmed was appointed prime minister to try and address the issues that the people had. Let me pause you there for a moment, because the fascinating dimension to this, you mentioned Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, a Nobel Prize winner in 2019, who has now launched this war on the Tigray region. Now the Nobel Committee is quite concerned about the war that he has launched on Tigray. Yes, it is fascinating. In the span of one year, Abiy Ahmed has gone from this promising Nobel Peace Prize winner, someone who's ushering in democracy, to someone who could be held accountable for war crimes, for genocide, for ethnic cleansing. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of international agencies who are now documenting the things that are happening. And so for me, this country that I was so proud of, you know, being an Ethiopian was a sense of... um, pride for me and something that I talked about often and frequently, especially because the country overcame so much in such a short period of time to now suddenly being, you know, looking at Ethiopia and wondering how I fit into that story. Tigray has not only been attacked by federal troops, but Abiy Ahmed allowed Eritrean troops and the Eritrean president, Isaiah Safawarki, who, by the way, is this awful dictator who's been in power for decades, never been elected. He was asked about elections once and he said, what are elections? I mean, he's that kind of person. Allowed them to come into Tigray and completely loot the entire state. I'm telling you, chairs, tables, books, food, they've burned fields. And, you know, my family are farmers. Farmers. Most people are farmers in that area. The U.S. State Department has called for the Eritreans to withdraw from Ethiopia, citing evidence of human rights abuses, as you described there. That's right. And you know, what's frustrating is our families have been telling us this for months. They've been, whenever, see, there was a communication blackout, so no one could get the story out of what was happening. So little by little, we would get bits and pieces of information out of Tigray. And at one point, the the lines were opened up and lots of information came out, but there were pictures of Eritrean troops looting. We learned about rape. That was probably one of the most shocking things that we learned about. Um, There's a story about a young girl named Mona Lisa who's 18 and she fought her rapist. She fought the Eritrean soldiers. They ended up shooting her arm, shooting her leg. Her arm and leg are now amputated. But I think about her spirit and how she fought back. And I think about my family and are they fighting back now? What's happening there? And why would your own government allow this to happen to you? 
I mean, that's an identity crisis. How do you reconcile that? So what is your goal? I mean, I know that raising awareness is a first step, but it it must be, in a way, uh, a somewhat overwhelming feeling and maybe one of powerlessness when you see the forces at play here and the cruelty at play. Incredible powerlessness. I have never, as someone who is hyper-focused on justice here where I live in Denver and trying to uplift voices of marginalized people and people who can't be heard, I can't tell you how broken I felt the past few months screaming at the top of my lungs along with many other Tigrayans and not being heard. Something's changed in the last couple of weeks where we're finally being heard. And there are other people, non-Tigrayans, who are speaking up and saying, this has to stop. This is happening in the dark. Um, And so I have some hope that, number one, we can stop the violence. That's our biggest goal, is just to stop what's happening right now. Beyond that, we're asking for sanctions against Ethiopia and Eritrea to stop funding this war. Our families need help. We need to get to them. We need to know if they're even alive at this point. We're hearing that over a million people are missing. And that's that was said by the interim government in Tigray who represents Abi Ahmed. So if he's telling us a million Tigrayans are missing and he works for the federal government, just imagine what the truth must be. Are you in contact with Colorado's U.S. senators about this? Yes. So Senator Bennett has been very responsive and just very concerned about what's happening on the ground in Tigray. We're at a point now where we need more than just concern. We need action. We need our senators to speak up. Uh, Jason Crow has also been very responsive and reaching out to the community to figure out how they help and and what to do next. So um, there's promising signs there, but we're at a point now where we desperately, desperately need action. Jason Crow, the congressman from Aurora, which is one of the most diverse cities in the state and home to many refugee communities and immigrant communities. Melody, thank you so much for being with us, and I appreciate your sharing your story. Thank you so much. Melody Berhana Maskell owns Whittier Cafe in Denver. She's campaigning for more international attention on the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia. Tigrayans in Colorado will demonstrate at the state capitol at noon today. Up next, a timeless timepiece. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Do you have an instrument that's sitting in a closet somewhere that hasn't been used for years? Why not give that instrument new life? Get it out from under your stairs and get it into somebody's hands who's going to use it, learn from it, and make a difference in their lives. The Bringing Music to Life Instrument Drive is going on through March 21st. You can impact a student in Colorado with your instrument donation. Find out more at bringingmusictolife.org. There's a song that generations of kids have learned all over the world about a clock. Here's a 1908 recording by the Haydn Quartet. My grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on the floor. It was taller by half than the old man himself, so it weighed not a penny weight more. In the 1950s, Burl Ives sang a bittersweet version. His life seconds numbering. But it stopped short, never to go again when the old man. 
Well, a real-life clock inspired the song, My Grandfather's Clock. And Dan Parker of Centennial grew up with that clock, which was in, as you might guess, his grandfather's house. This was in Massachusetts. The clock remains in a family home back east. And Dan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Describe this clock for us. What did it look like? I assume it was quite tall. It was seven feet, four inches tall. Oh. And that extra four inches were a set of three finials that were on the top of the clock, one on each side and one in the middle. Finials, little decorations, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, spiky decorations. And those are the original finials that were on the clock when it was built in sometime in 1790. It must have seemed towering when you were little. Oh, yes. Well, the first time I was aware of it, I was about uh, five years old or so. We lived on the second floor of the farmhouse, and my grandparents with the clock lived on the first floor. I'd hear a strike, and that didn't bother me any. But then the first time I saw it, here I was about, oh, I don't know, what, maybe 36, 40 inches tall, <laughs> and look at this thing, and I had to bend just about bend back over to see the top. Did you fear that it would fall over on you? No. Okay. No, I never did that. It was so big, it was, it had the weights. It was an eight-day clock that you had to wind every seven or eight days or it would stop. Yeah. And that's where the line in the, in the song came from because the clock did stop the afternoon that the old man died because the old man was the only one that wound that clock. And he'd wound it a week before and he became sick and died on the eighth day and the clock stopped. Oh, it's helpful to have that background. What did it yeah. sound like? You mentioned the chime of it. It wasn't real loud. It was a chime rather than a bell. How did the clock come into your family's possession? What's the deal here? Well, it was built and bought by a family member around 1790, 1792, something like that. We don't have any first-hand account of who, who bought it and when. We just have to go by the clues that the song gives us. Oh, the song gives you a clue. Yeah, 90 years it stood on the car on the floor. Oh. That's the clue. And that was in uh, 1876 or maybe a year or two earlier. No, that's exactly right. The song was written by Henry C. Work in 1876. He also, by the way, wrote Wake Nicodemus and The Ship That Never Returned. I understand that uh, the composer, Mr. Work, had a tie to your family. What was that tie? He was. He was married to my second great aunt. And then he somehow learned about this imposing well, clock. They, they would come to visit her folks, and it was right there. The <laughs> clock was right there in the house. And so imposing, in fact, that he wrote a song about it. And, yeah. and the song really is kind of a mini biography of a grandfather, uh, seemingly told through the eyes of a child. Now, the clock has moved a lot over the years. It usually follows the male heir in your family. The eldest son. The eldest son. I'll say that despite a, a lack of family documentation, the Smithsonian has said that your family's clock is indeed the one the song is based on. So the clock remains in Massachusetts, right? You didn't bring it out yeah. to Colorado. Why, why not bring it out here? Well, because it spent its entire life in a, cl a humid climate yeah, <laughs> and something that's over 2,000 miles away. And we were afraid if we moved it out here, it would not stand the move or the relocation. So I signed off, and it went to my younger brother, 
but mm. it was my turn. And so he's the one that had it, and now he's died, and his oldest son has it. Well, I want to hear now from a Japanese pop singer, Ken Hirai, who performed My Grandfather's Clock, uh, yes. first in Japanese. That's Ken Hirai. He also does the song My Grandfather's Clock in English. He actually came to the family home in Massachusetts to record that, didn't he? Twice. He came the first time in 2000, and he saw the clock, and my family all got together, and they would sing it to him in English, and he would sing it back to them in Japanese. Hmm. And then he went down to uh, the town in Connecticut where Henry C. worked, grew up in Middletown, Connecticut, and they had a concert down there at the local church uh, with the church choir. He went back to uh, Japan. He cut a single and sold 400,000 copies of the single in less than a year. Wow. And so Sony, who was the sponsor of, the, of Ken, decided that they wanted to have him come back over and, and sing at the clock on New Year's Eve day huh. here. And it was beamed back to Japan for a New Year's Day celebration. Uh, early that morning, about six o'clock in the morning, my brother woke up and realized there was a whole bunch of people on the road out in front of the house, the farmhouse. And it was fans of this songwriter that had come from Boston and New Haven and, and Hartford and even New York City to see their, their popular singer that they enjoyed. So he had, he had to call the police to close the highway, <laughs> to close the road in front of the house. Dan, uh, the clock has not gone unscathed through That's the right. years. I understand there was a little accident at one point. Yes. A young lady was driving up the highway, uh, the road up to the, toward the house. There was a curve in the road about, uh, I don't know, 50 yards out from the house. And she, this was at 1 o'clock in the morning. She fell asleep, and she didn't make that turn. The car came across the field between two great big elm, uh, maple trees and hit to the corner of the house where the clock was. It destroyed the case, but it didn't damage the works, and it didn't break even break the finials on the top, but it shattered the case, and the pendulum went across the room, through the wall, right across the bedroom where my parents were sleeping below in the bed, and lodged in the outside wall of the house. Wow! The next day, they picked up all the pieces from the clock and spread them out on the barn floor. Then they got a, a cabinet maker from the Berkshires that came down and he said, I can rebuild that clock. You've collected a lot of memorabilia through the years. Um, yes. I, I can hear your love for this clock. Why is it so important to you, do you think? Well, I'm a history buff. Hmm. And I'm kind of the family historian. And my wife is a genealogist and she's the family genealogist so between the two of us we've collected a good deal of the uh, memorabilia that we could find dan do you miss the clock is it hard to be away from it uh 
Well, yeah, it's difficult to be away from it, but I'm so happy I'm not living in New England. <laughs> I like to visit New England, but I don't want to live it there. Well, that seems like a perfect way to end an interview for Colorado Matters. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate you spending the time with us. Okay. Dan Parker lives at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial. He grew up with the clock that inspired the song My Grandfather's Clock. My grandfather's clock was to last for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on the floor. It was taller by half than the old man himself, though it weighed not a and that's Colorado Matters with a team that keeps on ticking. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And special thanks to Monica Castillo. This is CPR News.